The following program is sponsored by Evangelical Life Ministries. Welcome to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz. Sponsored by our friends at the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty here in Washington, D.C. A program that cuts through the chaos and confusion in the culture today by talking to kingdom citizenship, bold biblical principles for a robust public Christian life. And now your host, Dr. Greg Seltz. Good day, good day, Washington, D.C., and friends of the program all across the country. I'm Greg Seltz. Welcome to Liberty Action Alert. Today on our program, we are talking about the Groff Supreme Court victory, and we have uh, as our guest Mike Berry, General Counsel for the First Liberty Institute, and Tim Gagline, Vice President of Government Communications, Focus on the Family. Uh, welcome, Mike. Great to be with you again. Yeah, and welcome, Tim. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Okay, Mike, congratulations again for this victory in the Groff case. But to get our listeners, especially those who follow us, uh, not just on radio, but also follow us on our webpage and stuff, what is this case really about? What are its implications? And what does this mean for the public practice of faith in the workplace? Well, I'll start with the facts of the case, which are fairly straightforward, and then we'll get into the you know, what does the case actually mean for the rest of us? Uh, the case involves Gerald Groff, who was uh, for many years a, you know, a happy mail carrier for the U.S. Postal Service in a rural part of Pennsylvania. And as most of us know, I mean, I think the three of us probably grew up in an era when the mail did not deliver on Sunday. Right. And that worked very well with Gerald because as a practicing Christian, uh, he felt that it was very important to him and his faith that he observed the Sabbath, and he takes that very literally, meaning he does not do any work on Sunday. And as I just said, if you're uh, if you work for the post office, that would be a great arrangement because the post office, for at least most of my life, didn't deliver on Sunday. But around 2016, 2017, the post office entered into a, an agreement with Amazon uh, to begin delivering Amazon packages on Sunday. So Gerald asked for a religious accommodation to not have to do that. And initially it was approved, but then uh, there was a new management at, at his local uh, post office. And the new manager, the new postmaster there, told Gerald that he was going to have to start delivering and, and working on Sundays and that uh, they were no longer, no longer going to accommodate him. Even if he tried to find, I mean, he, you know, he tried to work things out, as you can imagine, you know, offering to switch shifts with somebody, right. uh, offering to take extra shifts, whatever he needed to do in order to to make sure that he could have this religious accommodation, which is something that federal law permits. And so that's where really the, the legal issue arose is federal law permits employees to seek religious accommodations. There is a law called the Civil, uh, Civil Rights Act, and part of the Civil Rights Act is Title VII, and that governs, uh, it prohibits unlawful discrimination in the workplace. And under Title VII, if you ask for a religious accommodation, the employer is typically supposed to approve the religious accommodation unless the employer can show that approving the religious accommodation would impose an undue hardship on the employer. And that's where the legal issue arose, because back around 50 years ago, 19 in the early 1970s, roughly 50 years, there was a, a Supreme Court case called TWA versus Hardison. 
TWA stands for Trans World Airlines. I know the three yeah, of it's us. It's gone. Probably, yeah, the three of us are familiar with Trans World Airlines. Uh, most of our younger uh, viewers and listeners have probably never heard of it. Well, uh, a lot of people in St. Louis have heard of it because that was the key airlines in St. Louis. And it, when it left, it, it was hurt. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Yeah, and, and, and so there was an employee whose last name was Hardison. And Mr. Hardison, just like Gerald Groff, was a Sabbath observant Christian. And he asked, for the right to, uh, you know, to not have to work on Sunday. And TWA said, no, I'm sorry. And uh, we're going to have to have you work on Sunday. And they, they used this exception that I just mentioned, this undue hardship exception. And the case went to the Supreme Court. And the question all the way back 50 years ago was, okay, so what does, what did Congress mean when they talked about this undue hardship? Well, the Supreme Court back in the 70s is very, very different than it is today. Right. It was a much more progressive, I would even say, you know, liberal Supreme Court who believed in back then what we would call a, a, a living constitution, right? I don't want to get into bore everybody with all the legal, you know, mumbo yeah, but, but let them know that, you know, the idea that judges could actually create legislatively from the bench, you know, where they could make up something, whereas they're supposed to just apply the law. Go yeah. back to you. So, so that was an era in which judges from the Supreme Court on down, by and large, would basically say, well, what do I think the results should be, mm-hmm. right? And whatever I believe the correct result is, because I'm a really smart person, you know, I'm a judge. Mm-hmm. I went to law school. And and so what do I believe in my wisdom and judgment is the right result? And then whatever I think the result should be, I'll just make sure that I write an opinion that makes the law match my desired outcome, mm-hmm. because I'm really smart, you know? And obviously what I'm implying here is that a lot of times these judges believe that they were smarter than the rest of us. That was the decision in the TWA versus Hardison case, which was an undue hardship. What that really means is the employer just has to show that there would be more than a de minimis burden on the business. And so then people say, what's a de minimis burden? <laughs> well, de minimis is a fancy Latin word for, you can hear the root word minimus, which meaning yeah. minimum, right? Yeah, inconvenience. The bare minimum. If right. you can show as an employer the bare minimum of an inconvenience or a hardship on your business, then you win, employer. You don't have to approve the accommodation. Well, over the course of 50 years, you can imagine this became a one-way ratchet, right, to where the employer almost always won, where they could say, well, this is a more than de minimis burden on my employee in my employment. If I have to swap shifts with somebody, that's a burden. If I have to let somebody work overtime, that's a burden, and so on and so forth. Well, fast forward 50 years later to Gerald Groff's case, which went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and First Liberty and our co-counsel, we argued that that de minimis burden standard is is not the appropriate standard. Right. That doesn't, it's not supported by the text of, of Title VII. It's not supported by the text of the Constitution. And thankfully, we now have a Supreme Court who no longer believes in this, well, you know, whatever we think the results should be, well, you know, we'll sort of fire an arrow wherever it lands, we'll paint a target around it and say, ah, we hit the target. Right. Uh, whereas now we have a court and, and, and a majority on the court who look to the, the original meaning, the original public meaning of the words that are either in the Constitution or the words that are in federal law. And they say, we have an obligation, whether we like the outcome or not, we have to give purpose and effect to the actual text. And that's what we mean by when we say a textualist court or a textualist judge 
or an originalist judge. Right. And that's what happened in the Groff case is they said undue hardship doesn't mean bare minimum. Undue hardship means undue hardship. Right. It's something that the employee, the, the business would not normally have to do in order to accommodate the employee. And so Gerald won. And so the court. And what was the yeah? What was the ruling? Was it a nine zero ruling? Was it unanimous? That, and well, that was the probably the big surprise in the case, right? Okay. Most people expected it to be six three, maybe even five four, and then it came out. It was unanimous. Good, right? It was nine zero. Yeah. And in a, in a religious liberty case, we haven't had many nine zero decisions recently. Only, right. only a handful here and there. Right. So that was the big surprise that I think got everybody's attention. Wow. You know, yeah. we even got the progressive justices to agree. And so well, what did they agree to? Well, let right? me jump in. Let me jump in to, yeah. uh, to take off on something you were just talking about and talk to uh, Tim about this, because I think underlying a lot of this is what Mike's talking about, which is this notion that the workplaces, the public realm, it's supposed to be secular. You bring in. A, in fact, what do we need to worship for anyway on Sunday? I mean, aren't we past all that? And 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 kids are being taught this. They're even being taught that the revolution was was really an economic revolution. That religious liberty had nothing to do with it. It's just so ridiculous. And then you see people who are serious believers, which undergirds our liberties, by the way, everybody. Um, and somehow they're being attacked in the workplace. Don't we have to get the church people to at least start to understand mm-hmm. that you know we can't let that caricature of us be set into law, which is what was happening in this case. Uh, how How is this going to challenge us as Christians, Tim? You know, I think people are scared to be found out to be Christian today. They're not, you know, blathering about their faith in, in the public realm. They're just afraid they'll be found out and fired. And how is that going to maybe turn this around? Yeah, I'm celebrating de minimis progressivism. I think we need the smallest amount possible. So let, let me take a step back and take a crack at this wonderful uh, question you've asked. Does anybody, left or right, find it, what they say in England, you know, passing strange, that this remarkable Groff case arose in a state, in a commonwealth, named for one of the greatest defenders of religious liberty in the history of the United States, William Penn, where the named, of course, Pennsylvania takes his name from where the Groff uh, case arises. William Penn, and uh, wrote at length some of the most powerful treatises on religious liberty and the rights of conscience in the history of our nation. And I was reading some of those actually this morning in preparation for our conversations together. I'm really struck by the timelessness of what Penn was saying. And he was speaking very specifically about the kind of coercive actions that increasingly both the private and the public sector think that they can kind of ipso facto employ for their own ends. There's nobody really east to west in our great country who thinks that somehow the United States uh, Postal Service cannot accommodate uh, a Christian who's living in the rural part of Commonwealth Pennsylvania because this man wants to take a day uh, for his Sabbath. And I, I want to say a second thing, if I may, Greg, to the to the other point that you raise, and I think it's very important in light of this great victory for our friends at First Liberty Institute. And by the way, it is a great victory. Right. And it's the following. I think for all the rightful uh, concern and prudence over the so-called Roberts Court, I think that this perhaps might be the most uh, pro-religious liberty Supreme Court that we have had in American history. And I actually include the great Chief Justice Marshall, 
you know, uh, in that. Think of the sheer number of religious liberty cases that have come to the United States Supreme Court, many of them Lutheran in derivation. I mean, you know, just just since the time that John Roberts became our chief justice. And I, mm. I think that these great victories, uh, not that we do, but they just cannot be taken taken for granted that these are these are very big wins well and let me get back to you mike because this is my thing you guys are doing great in terms of the court even when i talked to kelly shacklevert he said you know the courts are uh, the courts are blowing the the jail cell open but christians are still stuck kind of in this notion that i don't have the freedom to kind of go out there and be christian we're we're literally keeping ourselves out of the conversation for fear of it still, you know, costing us something that we can't afford to pay. And I guess my challenge now is I see what you're doing. You're doing a great job. And the good thing, this was a 9-0 ruling. But on some of these other cases, too, right away, the the folks who are what I call secular pietists, you know, they're not progressing to a utopian goal. I think they're regressing uh, from from kind of the freedoms that we have. They're already doubling down. They're smearing the court. They're still smearing believers as if we're the ones causing these problems, if we would just get on board. And and so I guess my challenge to you now is as a lawyer who's learned how to actually present these cases properly, help our people in, in kind of voicing what this is really all about. We're we're the ones that are are the live and let live people in a lot of these issues, but we still want to be able to be who we are because we believe it's a blessing to others. How did this stuff get turned around? Well, and you brought up so much <laughs> yeah. to unpack, right? I mean, yeah. Um, uh, I'll start with something you said towards the beginning of of your you know your question, which was talking about as believers when we get these victories. You said you know it, it, Kelly Shackelford, our president and CEO at First Liberty, says it is. It's it's like the court are uh, throwing open the 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 jailhouse doors, but mm-hmm. yet many people of faith in this country are sort of still stuck in their cells and right. and, and don't realize it. And I think there are actually a lot of theological parallels to that uh, okay. in, in terms of what it, it's it's like as a person of faith. And, and specifically, if you're a Christian, you know, that often we are given freedom, right, by our mm-hmm. Lord and Savior and freedom from bondage to, to many of the things that that weigh us down in life. And yet it's as if we don't realize that we've been freed from those things and we right. and we continue to just allow them to affect us. And so I think there are some definitely some theological parallels there, but further. Well, you ju- listen, you just said something. I got to jump in because that was, man, you, you're, you're, Mike, you were Lutheran there, my friend. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> no, I mean, the idea that the Christianity is not a religion. It's a declaration. It's a declaration that you have been freed. Somebody freed you and it had nothing to do with you. And now you can live in that freedom or you can stay in the bondage that you've decided to stay in. And that ultimately is a message. Religion is do something to get God off your back. Christianity is the proclamation that God got himself off your back. But anyway, what you're saying now back to living this, well, we've been kind of browbeaten that we're in, we're the problem and we should self-mute so that you know we don't affect society in a negative way. I would argue if you get out there and just act Christian and act the way that you, you know, God gives you to act, you can be a real blessing even to those who don't necessarily agree with you on these issues, right? Yeah, I mean, you brought up a lot of the the critiques and even the attacks on the court, its legitimacy, right. the justices themselves, and uh, you know, I find that as a student of the law, as a student of history, 
I find that to be just so interesting because if you go back to that era that we were talking about, right, in the 70s and 80s, when the court was far more progressive and it was delivering victory after victory for the far left in this country, uh, and it was conservatives who were crying foul, right? It was conservatives back in that era who were Mm -hmm. criticizing the court as being an activist court, as legislating from the bench, as departing from the Constitution, as the framers intended it to be. And the far left were the ones who were defending the court and its, and its supposed legitimacy back legitimacy back then and, and calling for judicial independence and saying that conservatives shouldn't be criticizing the court. Courts should be free from that sort of <laughs> you know criticism and interference with the ability of those judges to do their jobs. And yet now... When the now that the composure uh, composition of the court has shifted and it's beginning to deliver some conservative victories, you, you see that their tune has changed. So what this is really about, and I hate to be to be dour about it, but it's about power right. and control. They ultimately want power, and when they have power, they'll do anything they can to keep it. All right, and when they feel that that power is beginning to slip from their hands. They want to change the rules. It's like Lucy with the football and Charlie Brown, you know, and and they want the ability to continue to hold that football. And every time, you know, we think that there's about this was back when we had a, a, you know, a liberal Supreme Court or one that delivered victories to the liberals uh, on a consistent basis. Defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory time and time again. And now that the tide is turning, you're seeing that they say, well, now we need to change the rules. Right. right. We need to exp- you're hearing from the far left and, and in the extremists, we need to expand the Supreme Court. We need to give President Biden or whomever it happens to be. All right. That the opportunity to to fill the court with as many justices as we can. And but watch if I don't know. Obviously, I can't read the future. But if a Republican happens to win the White House in the upcoming mm-hmm. election and has the opportunity and a Republican has the opportunity to appoint judges to the federal bench, just watch how fast their, t- their tune changes. And they mm-hmm. and how fast, you mark my words, they will so quickly say, we don't need any more justices on the Supreme Court. We mm-hmm. don't need any more, that we need to stop the flow of, of, of lower court judges and so on and so forth. So that just should tell you, it's never about principle. It's only about power. Well, and one of the things I want to say to people out there, because I hear this all the time, well, it's, no, we're a conservative court. No, we want a liberal court. No, it, even when the conservative court, as they are titled now, it's a constitutional court. It, it, that's different than a conservative court. I'm, there, my conservative politics might not win on some of these. I was just an, a ruling, another ruling that I didn't agree with. I thought, oh, this the court got it wrong. But again, you didn't see conservatives marching on judges' homes. You didn't see conservatives threatening judges or the judiciary. You didn't see them trying to knuckle it under because the founding fathers understood that there was going to be selfishness in every branch of government. They knew that, which is why they kept them separate. Folks, quit falling into this notion that whoever gets the court, they get to get their politics through the court. No, there's one group of people saying the court's not supposed to be political. It's supposed to obey the law or it's supposed to limit these people by virtue of the constitutional limitations. One thing on that, and and because I, I believe it was Justice Thomas, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it was Justice Thomas who who once said that the mark of a good judge is that he will sometimes reach a decision that he personally doesn't like. Okay. But yet, nevertheless, that is that, that that is what the law 
the text of the law compels him to reach as a decision, even if he personally doesn't like the outcome. And he said, that's the mark of a good judge. And I absolutely agree with that 100%. And I wish every judge in America were like that. Boy, that's a phenomenal statement right there, because I disagree with that. Okay. And I don't care what side of the argument you're on. Okay. But here, Tim, lately, what now is coming our way in terms of us defending some of these things. Now I'm hearing things like abortion. We, we demand abortion because it's, it's our religious perspective. It's for religious liberty perspectives that we demand this now. And I can almost see Festivus now being, you know, demanded as a holiday to be celebrated when a guy wants to get off work. I mean, I can see some of the silliness of this going. We we think that's that, that's ridiculous. But <clears throat> when you can claim religious liberty uh, to kill a baby, you know, it, it's just it, it blows our mind. Christians need to be aware of that. And I've had some Christians ask me, well, what do we do about their saying that this is a religious liberty issue for us? So there's a sense where we're going to have to defend what religion is again in the public square, too, right. don't you think? I, I do. I, I think it's very important that we send up a signal to our fellow believers that we are in an era of both distraction and an era of manipulation, especially when it comes to the United States state Supreme Court. And this is why going into the third turn, I guess, we're in uh, you know, the middle part of the year into 2024, why the stakes are so high. Clarence Thomas, 75 years old, he serves on the court five more years. He will be the longest serving justice in the history of the United States. This October, he will be on the court 32 years. Justice Alito, a very reliable constitutionalist, well into his 70s. We talked about Chief Justice Roberts nearing that seventh decade. Uh, we know that the last president before President Biden, President Trump, nominated, confirmed over 200 federal judges uh, and three members of the United States Supreme Court. To the second point, we are a year past Dobbs, and we have a member of the Supreme Court, Justice Alito, who says he knows who leaked the draft back to manipulation. And it just seems to me that in the era that we're in, and to Mike's point as well, and I know uh, First Liberty Institute has done this phenomenal work on what they call the Supreme Coup, artificially expanding the size and scope of the Supreme Court on the part of progressives so that they can more predictably get the outcomes they want, even though it may not be what the fixed meaning of the words of the Constitution say is, you know, is permissible, is lawful. So it just seems to me that as we look ahead, just a few months down the line, we have a huge stake uh, as believers in this whole question of what is the future of religious liberty as attenuated by the men and women who may be next on the Supreme Court and next in the federal courts. And so I'll just end it with this. Folks, doing what is right in your own eyes is not a religious principle. <laughs> you know, so I, there is going to be this falderall and, and just turning this stuff on its head to see if that works. We have to begin to realize that the law, the the way that God orders the world in, in the Scripture— when that was taken seriously in public policy and organizing, you know, uh, you know, both 
uh, the government and the freedoms that we have. You know, it's set free individuals unlike any other time in human history. And there's a reason for that. Your that your rights come from the fact that you're created by God. All that stuff is worth defending. It your liberties of even other people who don't believe it depend on it. So it, we need to get back involved in this robust debate, not only of temporal freedom, which is July 4th and all the stuff we've just celebrated, but also about the eternal freedoms in Christ. And Mike's work has given us again more freedom to do just that. And Tim, you and I are going to have to actually continue to help our people uh, be robust proclaimers of that for the sake of everybody. Mike, thanks again. Keep up the good work. Let people know uh, your website just so they can go and take a peek at all this stuff. Firstliberty.org. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right, Tim, and thanks again. We'll continue to talk about these victories. Thanks so much. God bless. Thanks for tuning in today. To get to know our LCRLDC work better, check out our website at lcrlfreedom.org. Contained there are resources to empower your public square dynamic discipleship. Or check out our weekly Word from the Center opinion piece every Friday at facebook.com forward slash lcrlfreedom. Till next time, God bless you always. I'm Greg Sells. Have a great week. You've been listening to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz, Executive Director of the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty in Washington, D.C. This program has been brought to you by the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty. 